Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Thank you, Dr. Shade, for being with us here today. I'm super duper excited to have you. You are talking on a topic that I think is super interesting and more people need to know about. So thanks for being here. Oh, I'm very happy to be here, Anne-Marie, and uh, happy to share all the stuff that uh, has filled my brain. All right. So let's get into it. Let's get into mercury, because I know that you have a lot of knowledge and information on mercury. So why do we need to be concerned about mercury? Yeah. So mercury, you, you, first your exposures, you got the, the old dental fillings and then you got fish. There used to be mercury in vaccines, not so much anymore, but those are your two main ones. What's coming out of those silver fillings and what's in the fish? Now, the reason to be concerned is because mercury is able to inhibit every single enzymatic reaction in your body. And so it becomes, even though it's mercury, it's this lead blanket on everything. It's slowing you down at a cellular level, at a mitochondrial level, by diminishing resources in your mitochondria, diminishing mitochondrial number, mitochondrial mitochondrial effectiveness. It's lowering glutathione, which is vastly important in your body for free radical control, for detoxification, immune stabilization, and even maintenance of telomere length. So it's an anti-aging thing as well as a chemo protection thing. Mercury affects you as an adrenal lover. It lowers your, it's sort of always taxing your adrenals. At a, at a neuro, oh, also at an energetic level, it works right on the thyroid and prevents T4 to T3 conversion. So that's lowering peripheral active thyroid hormone, which is lowering metabolism. So all that's weighing that down. Well, at the same time in the brain, it's very neurotoxic and it's working uh, initially on glutamate receptors. And so that makes your glutamate receptors hyperfire, which gives you anxiety and irritability and puts you in a sympathetic, stressed, a fight or flight autonomic response. All that is you know, sort of tweaking, lowering your energy, yet tweaking up your nervous system. And that tweaking up of your nervous system is lowering your detoxification. And so there's a whole way that it, it's minimizing, uh, minimizing your vitality, uh, you know, from these different angles. So mercury, cadmium and arsenic are all similar there, but mercury is probably the strongest player in Boyd Haley's work. It was the only metal that could disrupt every single enzymatic assay that he developed. Mm -hmm. So what you talked about glutamate, I think is really interesting because I have heard um, mercury actually creates anxiety, which you talked about severe depression and um, over the top anger spells that you would see. And so we'll definitely see this in, you know, potentially like, do you see a link here with autism? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I was chuckling there because when I started getting amalgams uh, in my early teens, maybe I was like 13 years old, they started filling these things up and I was a pretty chill kid otherwise. But then whenever my records would, would skip, you know, back when we had records, I would punch a hole in the wall. All of a sudden I had this freaking raging temper and, uh, and it would just be at inanimate things. It wasn't at people. It was things that weren't behaving for me. And, uh, so I always recall that. And, uh, Yes, the anxiety is the number one neurological 
old complaint. And as it winds you up into sympathetic all the time, you eventually crash down. And that's the depression. And it's also turning the wheels of what's called neuroinflammation, which is uh, a chronic inflammation in the brain, which is also driving that downward cycle into depression. Uh, and autism, you know, I'm, I'm not here to say mercury causes autism, because as we remove mercury from the vaccines, it's not like autism rates are going down. But mercury is definitely one of the things that can trigger a lot of the symptomology that's going in, on in autism. And one of the things that we have to see is a little bit of the chicken or the egg is first you have to know that detoxification and inflammation are fundamental opposites. When inflammation goes up, it turns down detoxification. So if you have a chronic inflammatory issue, like uh, autism has chronic GI and neuroinflammatory uh, cascades going on all the time, you are chronically turning down uh, detoxification and chronically retaining toxins that you're uh, that you're exposed to. So it's a little bit hard to say chicken or the egg, which came first. Uh, did the autism build up the uh, mercury uh, retention in there or was the mercury part of the triggering of the autism? But in autism, there's this triggered neuroinflammatory uh and it's like an immuno, it, it's like an autoimmune reaction that's triggered, this hyper runaway inflammation that's triggered. And definitely we see it triggered in, in a lot of kids who've received multiple vaccines at once. You just can't get away from that. But what were the predisposing factors? You know, they're often kids, they're sick, they're on antibiotics, they had a lot of exposures already, really delicate system. And then boom, you hit it with all these adjuvants and viral particles and uh, preservatives all at once and the whole thing spins sideways instead of a controlled immunological reaction. And a big thing that you see a lot is, oh yeah, well, you know, the kid hadn't been in in a long time. He was sick. I took him in because he had strep throat. They gave him antibiotics and they gave him five vaccines because he hadn't been in there in, in months. And so there's this this, I was about to say illiteracy, uh, but, you know, it's a non-thinking on the part of the medical world. Like, maybe I shouldn't do all these immunostimulants at the same time that they're sick as hell. And so that's where a lot of that stuff comes. And how does mercury weave through there? Well, it's definitely, if it's part of one of these multi-vaccinations into a sensitive system, mercury is great at spinning the immune response sideways. One of the very well-documented things is that mercury uh, will create an unopposed inflammatory response. So uh, when you have an inflammatory response, you should emit inflammatory and anti pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory cytokines together. So pro-inflammatory making a little fire where the infection is and the anti are containing that. And this unopposed inflammatory response, you have all the pro, but none of the anti-inflammatory, the countermeasures. And so the, you know, it's possible that the vaccine was creating this unopposed inflammatory response because of the mercury at the same time as the adjuvants and the immunostimulants from, from the virus particles and the whole thing spun sideways uh, but it's not so easy as just saying mercury causes autism like they used to mm -hmm. yeah I really great points and I think I like that you are not just 
simplifying it or oversimplifying it. Something interesting that I read, there was a study, gosh, it came out like six or seven years ago. I want to say it was in, I, I don't even remember, I'm not going to say, but they basically said that the mom was, had an undiagnosed autoimmune disease. It had to be about seven years ago, had an yep. undiagnosed autoimmune disease. She gets pregnant, has a child. And then ultimately what ends up happening is when the child is vaccinated, the child was already had a, had an immune system that was on the brink because of the, the mother's autoimmunity. And then it was enough to trigger it. So I take it you yeah. read that too, or agree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's definitely... There's definitely a lot of things going on with the mother. It's maybe not always that, but that's one of the things. And so I think we have to lay out what these risk factors are, uh, you know, because it's like this tinderbox about to go up and then you put the spark on and, and it freaks out. And then all these studies designed to show the vaccines don't do anything. The most recent one that I saw, uh, they made sure that none of the parents had any risk factors whatsoever and that none of the kids had any risk factors whatsoever. You know, nobody with any kind of history of any kind of infections or anything was allowed in this study. And then, of course, nothing went wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at this point, do you believe, since they're pulling the mercury out of vaccines, that they are safer or, you know, or no, what's your take on it, that? No, when you put them in, you know, there's history of use of, uh, of ethyl mercury as an adjuvant in veterinary medicine where they were trying to create immune reactions. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to get this light so not so weird. And uh, so when, when mercury was used in the vaccines, it was said to be a preservative because they couldn't get FDA approval for it as an adjuvant. And so I think... Uh, I think that it was acting as a second adjuvant in these uh, and, and, you know, maybe it was stoking the fire more so, but now you've got like aluminum nanoparticles in there and, you know, they're winding up the fire really bad. And I think it's a matter of safe use of vaccines, you know, first better trialing of the vaccines before they're uh, released. Uh, you know, the Gardasil would be a great example of something that was totally not, trialed enough has horrible uh the 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 reactions and the girls that get reactions are just out of control and the developer of the vaccine herself that one of the lead pi to, for developing it went totally against it and thought it should be off the market so uh i am not an advocate for no vaccines i'm an advocate of better testing and then picking when you give them and who you give them to we have to take time to figure out who's got the risk factors whether they're transient or permanent is this a genetic snip uh, or is it uh, a condition that the mother and the kid are sharing that uh, that the kid is going through at the time? How do we test? It's probably, you know, something in cytokine markers, you know, before they do these things, you know, is there inflammatory reactions that are going on? We just have to be a lot more careful about them because it's not like the idea of a vaccine and herd immunity is wrong. It's just the application. You know, I'd rather have Louis Pasteur taking a little vial of viruses you know, succussing them, diluting, succussing, diluting, diluting, and then scratching my skin and putting the damn things in.
in there than these injections, you know, because the question is, how do you scale this shit up? And so they scale up by putting all these preservatives in and then they got to kill. I met a guy who's a, a historian of vaccines at one of these conferences. And he said, here's where the his take was. Here's where the real problem started. And I'm probably wrong about the year, but let's say it's in the 50s. They're doing vaccines. They're doing these like mildly attenuated vaccines. And then one year they got too much live virus in there, not enough, you know, partially killed virus. And they get some people sick. So what does people do? They respond by overregulating. So now you got to cook the piss out of these things until the proteins are barely recognizable by the immune system. So the immune system's not even really sure, like, this is a virus. It's like, what the hell is this thing? And so then they started putting adjuvants in to really wind up the immune system. So it's like, oh, my God, I got to do something. I got to make a reaction to this thing. And then it's like, ah, what thing? How about I react to that? The thyroid. And so that, you know, I believe that's, that's a very logical discrimination point in time as to where this went sideways. And it was all about how do you scale this up from like a guy doing it to a couple of people to uh, one company making it and distributing it to billions of people. Now we got to do all this stuff and now we got to, you know, control for safety and in controlling for safety, we make a safety concern. Wow. No, that is really well said. I actually did not know that background in the 1950s when that really changed. And that was kind of the reason for using some of the nanoparticles. Well, that was no that uh, separate nano because that's sort of a newer thing is using the the nano aluminum. That was the reason for adding adjuvants. So an adjuvant, uh, there's preservatives and adjuvants. Preservatives are keeping microbial growth down, so I can have one vial. I can go in, take a dose, give it to this kid. Get a new syringe, go in, take a dose, give it to that kid. Go in, take a dose, give it to that kid. Uh, and that's just an antimicrobial preservative. And that is what allegedly thimerosal was. But there was also history of use as a adjuvant. So it probably, when they formulated it, they knew it was doing both sides of the coin. All right. Uh, that's a preservative. An adjuvant is something that is an irritant to the immune system that winds up the immune reaction. So when they started... Uh, when they started overcooking and over denaturing the proteins in the viral coat, the immune system wasn't as reactive to the vaccine. So they started putting immune immunostimulants into the vaccine. So the adjuvant winds it up. Now, thimerosal, I'm saying, was probably both uh, a preservative and an adjuvant. Uh, but that's sort of a different question. First is, why do we have these negative immunological reactions when we're doing the vaccines? So you started with just pure attenuated virus, and then you had to overcook it because we got some people sick. So you start adding immunostimulants into it. Then the immune system starts hyperreacting and doesn't always react just to the virus, and thus the potential for the autoimmune initiation by the adjuvant. Um, just a real dork out question. Are you seeing one or the other side of the immune system react more with, um, with vaccines when they get over, when someone gets overstimulated or does it, it's just the, their preference? You mean innate or, or TH1 or TH2? Yeah. 
Uh, it's supposed to work across both. And I, I couldn't really speak too much to it because I haven't looked at cytokine profiles. Yeah, I, I didn't know. Just just off the wall question. I, I would guess that you're getting overreaction in TH2 and TH17, and then you get these crazy inflammatory uh, kind of autoimmune disease. But you can have TH1 autoimmunity too. But my guess is it's TH2 and drawing in TH17, which is this hyper windup. Awesome. So at the end of the day, you know, we were exposed to mercury, you know, we can get exposed quite a bit. And a lot of folks will say, well, I eat organic fish, so I'm not exposed. And I, (laughs) right. So I think I want to like, I want to just, (laughs) yeah, I want to dispel that first off, um, because that is a common comment that I hear, oh, I'm not exposed to mercury or I'm not exposed to heavy metals. I eat organic. So can you touch base on organic fish and how you actually are still exposed to, to mercury there? Yeah. So mercury builds up in fish from the food chain. It builds up first mercury rains down. Uh, you've got mercury vapor in the sky from coal burning or from, from volcanoes, whatever. It oxidizes into a salt. It rains down, goes into the lakes, into the oceans, gets to an area where there's low oxygen and these bacteria there make it into this stuff called methylmercury. Now, methylmercury starts getting pulled into the protein structures uh, at the base of the food chain, say in the phytoplankton, and starts and it, it binds with the amino acid cysteine. And it looks like then methylmercury cysteine looks like amino, uh, the amino acid methionine. So it starts building up in the protein chain. The zooplankton eat the phytoplankton, goes into their protein. Uh, then the fish eat the zooplankton, it goes into them. And the fish, bigger fish eat them. And it grows and grows up till it's one to 10 million fold higher in the fish than it was in the water that the fish is swimming around. So, it's not a pesticide. It's not an herbicide. It has nothing to do with organic or not organic. Uh, it's the size of the fish and the area of the ocean that it lives. Certain areas of the ocean are higher or lower or the lakes. Certain lakes have higher mercury levels, lower mercury levels. But in general, the bigger the fish and the more active it swims, the more mercury it's going to have. To the point in the food chain that if you have like a big swordfish, uh, that might be 10 parts per million, and you have a little anchovy, that might be like one part per billion, you've got a 10,000-fold difference in mercury between those. And so you can choose along the food chain where to eat to minimize your exposure. All the people that I see get mercury toxicity from fish, like Tony Robbins, I famously treated him, CEO of IMAX. Uh, he you know, walks with a cane now because of neurological damage from that. Uh, different CEOs I've worked with. These guys were all eating tuna and swordfish, you know, big steaks. You know, they're eating like paleo, but out of this high end of the food chain. And they got so much mercury that it caused these uh, neurotoxic symptoms. Right. So. I, I like that. So now the other the other place that we're really getting exposed is from mercury amalgam. So there have been um, there's been a lot of debate to remove or not to remove the amalgams if you've had them. So it's, will you go ahead and, and clear that out for me? Stupid, <laughs> stupid, stupid debate. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, though. You know oh, I know what, what you're about. talking about. Because <laughs> if you just take your average drill and fill dentist 
and you say, take these things out. And he puts his high-speed drill on that amalgam. It is vaporizing the damn thing. There's like a million little little pieces, and they get shot all over your mouth and all over your body. And then the rest is going into vapor, and you're inhaling the whole thing. And if you have a, a blood level of 0.3 ppb of inorganic, and then you do that, you'll go up to like 1.5, you know, you like 5, 6, 10-fold elevation. And that's really bad, right? So there is your debate. But there is no debate, really, because there's what's called safe amalgam removal. And you put a mouth condom on it. It's called a de dental dam over it. You put vacuum in front of it, vacuum behind it. You use some, some special vacuums around it. It's just a little bit of equipment. It's like, oh, we're going to go into surgery. Well, there's a debate about whether we should do this surgery because everybody gets an infection. And you're like, well, why aren't you doing this in a sterile surgical room? You're like, oh, you mean my kitchen wasn't a good idea? Right. Okay, now there's no debate. We should do the surgery. It's the same damn thing. Oh, so I can buy just a little bit of equipment in my dental office and not expose you anymore? And I have data sets where it's like, you put this stuff on, there's no exposure anymore. There is no debate. The debate is, should we have surgery in our maybe garage you know, <laughs> or not have the surgery because you're probably going to die from the infection? Like, just have a proper surgical room. Mm -hmm. And so just get a proper dentist to remove it. Yeah, and then and, it's uh, very good to remove it. Yeah, it's great to remove it. And uh, there's an organization that kind of everybody has their sort of had their protocols, but then the one from the IAOMT, they're a holistic dental group. There's three main ones, but they're the ones who really make everything methodical. And they have these smart amalgam removal protocol. And you can ask the dentist, do you do that? Are you holistic? Do you do the smart protocol? And he might say, well, yeah, I do, but I modify this or that. You know, once you've got the basics in place, the right vacuum, the dental dam, you've just took 90% of it out. And then they just get better from there. And then how are you seeing, how much of the mercury or any of it are you seeing leach? Um, you know, at someone chews or if somebody does anything in the, in the mouth amalgams themselves? Well, I mean, I'm not looking at that because it's already been done. Uh, IOMT, you go on their website, they have the famous smoking tooth. Uh, they would have a, a fluorescent screen behind. They'd have these, you know, like a, it was like a fake, fake mouth and they would drill on a, an amalgam or they'd pour hot coffee on it and you'd just see the, You'd see these billowing clouds of mercury smoke because mercury fluoresces. That's how we do the analysis for it. We get it off as a vapor and use a fluorescence analyzer. And so you'd see these billowing clouds of mercury vapor coming out. It's been measured up the wazoo. You chew gum, you drink hot coffee or hot liquid, more of it comes out. Uh, we had people, we would have them rinse their mouth. I mean, you can measure it just in saliva. But if you rinse your mouth with just a solution of N-acetylcysteine, which is an amino acid with a sulfhydryl group that, that binds the mercury, and then you analyze what comes out. It's just ridiculous. You know, there's just tons and tons of mercury in there. You know, when we had somebody do it without amalgams and with, you know, there was a little bit of methyl mercury in their, in their, uh, in their mouth cells, you know, and, and there was a little bit of mercury in there. But then people with amalgams, they had like, oh, it was like 10,000 times more mercury in the rinse ate there. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And that's just swallowing and going down your GI all the time. That's why, you know, milligram for milligram, I, I think amalgam is a worse exposure than fish uh, because 
for everything that's going in through your absor- through your lungs, so there's a vapor coming off, and that's how it gets into your body, not the stuff you swallow. But the stuff you swallow goes in and poisons your GI tract and actually blocks detoxification of the stuff you inhale. So the the uh, cell, the blood, the liver to GI and out through fecal excretion is the dominant excretion pathway. And when the mercury builds up, you're swallowing it all into the GI. It actually blocks that flow down into there. So one form you're inhaling, the other form you're swallowing and blocking detox. So uh, I, I think amalgams really suck. And uh, then there's something called retrograde axonal transport. If the mercury is close enough to the nerves in your teeth, it can actually travel through the nerves into the brain. Uh, there's ways where you get these electrical circuits between different metals in your mouth and you start running all this ionic mercury up into your gums and into your jaw. You get these big depositions of mercury that are slowly leaching out. I mean, it's just nasty stuff. And it's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying, to be honest. And you certainly do not want that in your brain. And I mean, we know that that's going to lead to brain deterioration, et cetera. Like the list goes on and on. Yeah. And all these these people saying, oh, no, there's no evidence. It's like, all right, well, why don't you put depleted uranium in there instead? You know, would you do that? You know, probably not. It's actually less toxic. Maybe to see if you glow. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe that's it. Yeah. I mean, it's so scary. All of that is is terrifying. Okay. So we have, um, there are a lot of groups on Facebook that talk about uh, mercury detoxification. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know what I'm talking, you know where I'm going Andrew with this. <laughs> Here we go. And I will tell you, I cannot tell you how many times I have had to defend the way that I'm detoxing because I am not doing it per the Cutler protocol. And have so, you been called a murderer? I have not, but I think you have. So. <laughs> I've been called a murderer. You can go on that. You know, you can just Google Christian murderer. It's on there. They told the guy who was running a conference I was at in, in uh, London that they wouldn't come to the conference between, because Chris Shade was there and he's a murderer. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, it's now the only reason I don't know that I'm a murderer is because all the dead bodies haven't come back to tell me. <laughs> That's right. And it's so weird because there's just pages upon pages upon pages of studies that support maybe a different way of detoxification. Oh, yeah. So I think one of the biggest things that they comment on is that um, glutathione is not safe in any sort of metal detoxification. What's your opinion on that? Well, considering I promote glutathione and metals detoxification, obviously I think that's a bunch of hogwash. And uh, so why do they say all these things? So, you know, this was all born out of the biochemical understanding of 1980, which is really a bunch of crap. Uh, it was really in the 90s and 2000s and 2010 that we started to understand what are called the phases of detoxification, how things like the glutathione system work. And they don't work in a vacuum. They work as a system of transferases that are linking glutathione onto metals, transporters that are moving it out of the body. And since we evolved, this is how we get metals out of our body. In fact, plants have a glutathione system, and that's how they get metals out of their body. So saying you shouldn't do that, you're just a freaking idiot. So they decided that the way you had to do it was with this chelator called DMSA, and then bring in this other molecule called 
lipoic acid, which they uh, claim is a uh, is a chelator as well. Now, I'll tell you how the system really works. And the system works to a degree, but it'll take you three years to get better. We can get you through glutathione system upregulation. We'll get you feeling better in a couple of months, maybe totally out of the woods in sixth. So they would have these, uh, you have to take DMSA every four hours or every three hours, the half-life of DMSA, because it'll start mobilizing mercury. And if you stop taking it, it's going to drop all the mercury somewhere as you start moving the DMSA out of the body. So every four hours, they'd have a spike in the DMSA. It would come down, spike, and they would do like this. You'd have to wake up in the middle of the night. And if you had any side effects, they would say it's because you didn't do it exactly on this schedule. All right. And then when you started adding lipoic acid, you're supposed to keep right on that schedule too. Uh, now, DMSA is a chelator for metal. And it, in, for mercury, it'll bind mercury that's in the blood and it make it more filterable by the kidneys. So it'll go out and you'll be able to pee it out through the kidneys. Uh, but it's only moving a little bit at once and it can only work from the blood. So really, the problem is when it's in the tissues. You got to get it from the tissues out to the blood and then the chelator can work on it. So how do you do that? You have to do this thing called NRF2 upregulation, which turns up all the glutathione system in the cells and gets them to link mercury that's on the proteins onto the glutathione and then transport it out of the cells. Without doing that, you do not, you can't pull the metal off of the proteins. So the glutathione is necessary for that and it will spit it out of the cells into the blood and then your chelator can work. Well, the thing that upregulates NRF2 to do that, well, there's a lot of things to do, but my favorite thing is lipoic acid, all right? So lipoic acid does that, gets it out of the cells to the blood, and then the DMSA can work. Now, they were saying that lipoic acid is actually a chelator that goes into the cell and into the brain and, and pulls the mercury out, all right? Now, why do we know that it's not acting as a chelator? There's two forms of lipoic acid. Uh, they're, they're called racemic forms. They're mirror copies of one another. There's R and S lipoic acid. And if you get, uh, this is like D and L amino acids and D and L sugars. So only L amino acids work. And those are the left-hand ones. And the D or the right hands, those don't work. They don't fit through the transport systems. So you only use L. So alpha lipoic acid is an equal mi mix of uh, the R and the S enantiomer. And uh, as a chelator goes, they have exactly, if it were acting as a chelator, they have exactly the same uh, sulfur heads. And so they shouldn't act any differently as a chelator, but if they're hitting biological switches, they'll be very different. And indeed, our lipoic one is the one that's a great uh, NRF2 up re regulator. Alpha will work as well, but R works specifically uh, because it's the R form that activates NRF2. Uh, the S form is not so good. All right. So even they recognize that and they said, no, R is too potent of a chelator. You know, Cutler was an electrical engineer. I'm a metals chemist. This was exactly what I did. And I'm like, no, that's bullshit because the chelating ability would be exactly the same. But the NRF2 regulation ability is very different. And R is the one that does that. And look in the literature, and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of papers 
uh, about NRF2 up regulation uh, using lipoic acid. Then they cite this thing called the Gregus paper to say that it's actually a metal chelator. And in the Gregus paper, they give, at the same time they give all these metals to these mice, they give them a dose of lipoic acid. And there is this sort of rearrangement of the metals around the body. So they point to that, but they don't look at the way it upregulates glutathione flow out of the liver. And at different doses, it's doing slightly different things that show that at the highest dose, the lipoic acid is so strong that it's consuming all of the glutathione in detoxification of the lipoic acid. Now, what is this dose equivalent to in humans? It would be, depending on the, how you do the math, it's between 14 and 20 grams of lipoic acid as a dose. Nobody does that. So they accuse me of being a murderer because I don't use lipoic acid at their recommended time points because I think it's totally irrelevant. And they actually don't know what the half-life of lipoic acid is because it's not four hours. The half-life of a soluble lipoic acid is 30 minutes. It goes in, it triggers NRF2, and then all these ha things happen after it. And we're using like... 12 milligram doses up to 60 milligram doses at the highest end. This paper was using up to 20 grams in a single dose. And, uh, and you know, it was like, if you really know this chemistry, you see everything that's going on in that paper. And I wanted to have a debate with that crew about it. But then Andrew Hall Cutler, the guy who's the author of all this stuff, unfortunately died at the wee old age of 65 or 68. So obviously, I don't think he really had his finger on the pulse of biochemistry. Mm -hmm. And when we're really looking at mercury detoxification, what is an appropriate, like what are appropriate um, supplements to use yeah. for mercury detox? So, so the way that the body does do this, it's got mercury in the cells, it's got the transferases, it links the mercury and the glutathione, it ships them out through a series of transporters called phase three transporters, out of the cell to the blood, blood to the liver, liver through the bile, into the intestines, and then out. Now, unfortunately, some the methylmercury goes through the bile, comes back in. So we got a couple of things where we can work on. We want to smooth out that whole flow there. So we do need glutathione because, I mean, it... <laughs> It's so well documented that this is the way that the body deals with this, all right? So why are people getting sick? So their load of mercury is higher than their detoxification rate. So we want to take away the load and up the detoxification rate. So we can bring glutathione in and support that system there. We can upregulate the, the transferases that link the two together. That's called uh, phase two upregulation, which is part of NRF2 upregulation. So the lipoic acid is doing that. In fact, when you give a lot of lipoic acid, you actually see blood levels rise because the cells are pushing out of the tissues into the blood and you see it rise. Now, is the liver and kidneys going to commensurately pull down those levels? It depends upon their speed. So if you have them upregulated and draining really quickly, it'll work. So the cells are dumping to the blood. Now we need the filters to work, kidney and liver. Now, liver is the biggest animal in this. It's got a transporter that pulls in the blood into the liver and a transporter that dumps into the bile. In fact, all toxins are dumped through bile transporters. All toxins 
have to go through the liver into the bile and get to the GI tract. So if you have what's called intrahepatic cholestasis where the bile transporters aren't working, you cannot get the metals out of the blood. And what happens? They build up in the liver along with the bile salts and other oxidative stress that is a part of phase one reactions. And what does the liver do? It dumps them all back into the blood. This is the recirculation uh, or the stirring of the pot that people get into when they only do a monotherapy like lipoic acid. That is the danger of lipoic acid, and people have had a lot of bad effects of lipoic acid as a monotherapy. All right? So what do we have to do? We have to make sure that the bile transporters are flowing, and one of the things that blocks them is inflammation and stress. So you need to calm down the system. You need to feed bile, like cholagogs. These are like bitter compounds, uh, like myrrh and gentian. Phosphatidylcholine also fluidizes that move. You want to ship them out of their sympathetic autonomics, or you're using something like GABA or CBD to calm the autonomics. You need to calm down the immune reactivity that's coming from mast cells and TH2 dominance. So you're using things like quercetin, luteolin, and DIM to calm that down while so you, you know, you can upregulate uh, NRF2, but you have to smooth the liver pathways at the same time. Now, a lot of these are also called MPK activators, which are MPK is activated when you're carb restricted or fasting or in keto or by these nutraceuticals. So we might do something uh, around carb restriction or intermittent fasting, uh, but we're hitting these paths that are fluidizing the liver and, and getting the liver pathways smoothed out at the same time that you're dumping from the cells. You want to coordinate that activity, feed in the glutathione, upregulate, smooth the bioflow, and then right after you do that, come in with multi-specific binders that pick all those toxins up because even though we're talking about mercury when i activate all that all the other stuff that gets detoxified in those pathways is going to get, come tumbling out too so even though we make a binder called imd that's specific for, for mercury we're going to blend that with activated carbon zeolite chitosan some things to harmonize the gi function so that we can catch all that now, we do this all in liposomes and nanoparticle deliveries that have uptakes and peaks in the blood between 15 and 30 minutes after you take this stuff. So we have all these signals go at once, calm down the brain, bring in the glutathione, upregulate the cellular transport, upregulate the bile transport. And then 30 minutes after you took all that stuff, you come in with a binder, you catch it on the G GI tract, tie it up in a bow, and you don't have any symptoms. Mm -hmm. And how long are you seeing like it take for somebody to really detoxify out mercury? Because I know it's very challenging to, to measure the body burden of what no. mercury looks like in the tissues per se. That's a whole story too. You know, the whole body burden, you can never measure body burden, right? That's what you used to hear. That's right. another, another crack of shit. Uh, the, the cells are in a, in a steady state with the blood. They're in an equilibrium. As you pull, in fact, you know, if you do blood before and after a DMPS IV where you strip rapidly, you'll see the blood go down, you know, in like a, you know, a one hour period and 24 hours later, it's right back where it was as there's a redistribution into the blood. Now, uh, and, you know, I have animal studies that I did with universities where I did the analysis and you see this linear court, this linear relationship between the blood and the brain, blood and the kidneys, blood and the liver. You know, it is, uh, it is linked to all these compartments. 
the problem is when the compartments get nonlinear uh, and they're, you know, inflammatory reactions uh, hold on to stores of mercury in there. So it's not that you can't get a representation of the body burden, but you can't see where there's uh, localizations of, of accumulation for a variety of different reasons. Uh, you also can never see what's in the brain because the brain isn't, or at least for methylmercury, you can, but not for inorganic mercury. That one's inorganic mercury is a little bit less. It's slower to come to equilibriums than methylmercury. Uh, so it's a little bit difficult, but still, and it's hard to know, you know, for one person, what level is going to be toxic than another person. And that's for a number of different reasons. Uh, so it is a little bit difficult, but we do do testing and you can see. So if you're at, you know, five and you go down to one, I know that, you know, your body is loaded, unloaded that much mercury. Now, I don't know what's still behind the blood brain barrier. I don't know if your thyroid's holding a little bit. It hasn't gotten rid of. There's a lot of nonlinearity, but it's not like you're just totally in the dark. So what does it get? And you'll see people's symptoms come down with the blood levels. Uh, and just one more mention on the blood levels. We are doing mercury speciation, so we measure methylmercury separate from inorganic. This is the biggest reason why blood didn't mean much before, unless it was all fish-based, because the amalgam form, inorganic mercury, is at a different equilibrium with the tissues, where it's much more tissue-bound. So little bit in the blood means a lot in the tissue. Methylmercury is more mobile, and so, uh, you know, it's a lot in the blood represents a lot in the tissue. And so you got to separate those two and look at them as like two different metals. Once you do that, then blood's pretty good. So what does it take to get people down? Tony Robinson, the highest level I ever saw, we got him down, you know, to reasonable and feeling good in four months. Now, it was a very active detox. We've gotten other people from much lower levels to feeling good. Uh, in one month, but we still want them to keep going for a few more months. Uh, it used to, we used to have a slower system. It wasn't quite as coordinated. And uh, we used to tell people uh, four to nine months. Now it's really three to six months. Cutler protocol, three years, and you're going to be feeling worse the whole freaking time. Wow. And when we're really challenging to see what, how much mercury you have in your system, is your favorite challenge to actually? There's um, no. No, you do not challenge. Yeah, I, I've had more made up stuff. Yeah, and it's from the mean? 80s when our analytical equipment couldn't see anything. And it was like, there's no mercury in the air until you challenge it. It's just, you know, it's like if we had height meters. And, you know, the detection limit, I mean, the lowest it can go is five foot zero. There's a lot of people below five feet. Now, all of a sudden, they don't exist. Or say it's like five foot eight. Now, or no, say it's six foot. Now, most of the population doesn't even exist. And so how are we going to challenge them? We're going to give them a one. We're going to give them a three foot stool to stand on. And then we're going to be like, wow, I didn't even see you before, but you're actually nine feet tall. Wow, that's crazy. You are the tallest guy I've ever seen. Because we took this like you couldn't see much of anything. And then you give them a chelator and, oh, my God, there's a lot of mercury there. And then it got to where we even could measure what was going on in the background. And so they made reference ranges and like zero to 99th percentile for no for or say zero to 95th percentile for no challenge. And then they give you a chelator. 
and boom, everybody's past the 95th percentile. And then they would say, see, it was all in there and you just didn't know it. Well, wait a second. Now the reference range should be having an IV of 300 milligrams of DMS, DMPS. And then it's a reference range, you know, because like you're at nine, which isn't that high for a DMPS challenge. You're at the top of the reference range. You're in the red. Guess what? Mark Hyman, when he did his DMPS challenge, was 297. And nine, you're saying, is a big problem? 30? It's not. You know, I mean, that was all so mismanaged, it's ridiculous. And then what's the mythology around it? Well, we're going to challenge and see what's in there. No, just get a better test. It's all, you know, and we don't have non-detects. You know, occasionally you do. Like, there are people with almost nothing there. But the rest of the people, like, here's a reference range. Here's what everybody has. Here's how you stack up against the rest of the world. We're not going to chelate you and pretend that you have more mercury. I mean, I can't tell you. Everybody comes up to me. Oh, I challenged and I'm off the chart. Mm -hmm. You know, that was another myth. It was just based in the 80s. You know, we couldn't really see anything. So you give them a chelator and now we have a horse race. You're a 50. You're a 20. You're a 9. Okay. All right. The 50 has more. So, and then what is your favorite test to use for? Well, it's ours. It's called the mercury tri-test. We do speciation, separation of methyl and inorganic mercury in the blood. Mm -hmm. We do uh, just inorganic mercury in the urine and we do methyl mercury in the hair. So this was his other thing. Oh, yeah, hair. That's the best yeah, way that to was, walk. Okay, that was my next comment because I, I wanted to get into uh, the you hair get and urine. Because there's only one form of mercury in the hair. It's methylmercury. That's the form because it looks like an amino acid and you're getting rid of old proteins through the hair and it comes out through the hair in proportion to what's in the blood. So if you have, you know, 30 amalgams in your mouth and you never eat fish, no mercury in the hair. And what do they say? Well, you just can't mobilize mercury in the hair. And But once you do, then that'll get the mercury out of the brain. It comes out through the hair because the hair is a measure of the mercury in the brain. Like, you think the hair follicle goes through the skull? I mean, it's just like, who is in charge of this stuff? It's ridiculous. <laughs> and so methylmercury in the hair uh, you're looking at it versus methylmercury in the blood to see if there's some derangement in that transport of methylmercury out. There was original data uh, years ago, Boyd Haley had done a lot of this, where they saw the more severe the autism, the lower the mercury in the hair, given a, a woman who should have some mercury exposure. And uh, so that's where that came from. And it's a pretty good measure. You say we... Uh, it, You'll see it depressed and people are real toxic and you'll see it restore itself when you, when, you, when you fix them back up. The really good measure is inorganic mercury in the blood versus inorganic in the urine. Those are supposed to be at a certain ratio when the kidney's filtering right. And when the kidney is getting damaged, and it often does from a combination of mercury and endotoxin. Endotoxin is little parts of bacteria that are inflammogens that generate inflammation. You get that from leaky gut, periodontitis, jaw infections, UTI, sinus infections. That combination of the two damages those transporters. And then you see this uh, high blood, low urine. So then you can, you're, you're working to repair those transporters in the kidneys. So that's a really good one there. And actually, when there's damage like that there and you give them a DMPS challenge, 
that those transporters are necessary for the DMPS or DMSA. And so you'll get a false negative on their challenge test. And those will be really hard to treat with chelators. You know, and I'm not saying you should never treat with chelators. I'm just saying you should fix the glutathione system and then you can add some chelators on. And the guys over at Mark Hyman's group, that, that's what they do. You know, they'll, they'll use our system and then they'll lay a little bit of DMPS or DMSA on top of that. But that urine to blood ratio, that's a beautiful measure. The only one I know for the transport system there. So we call that the mercury tri-test, blood, hair, urine, different forms of mercury, transformations, and, uh, and, uh, and disposition of the drainage or detoxification pathways. Yeah, that's, that was really interesting. And the other thing that I, I have seen initially – um, when I got into practice about 10 years ago, like the, the chelating challenges were king, you know, EDTA, DMPS, yep. whatever, you yep. know, depending on what you were challenging for. And what I saw at that time, like I just could not explain. So you would, you would challenge, you would chelate. These folks would go through rounds and rounds and rounds and rounds of IVs and all this stuff. And then yeah. you go back through and you would challenge again and the numbers were higher. Yeah. Yep. You know, it, when you're not addressing the, because all you're working on is the blood, mm -hmm. but you got to get the tissues to come out and the tissues aren't releasing fast enough. And so you're stripping from the blood, but you have 10,000 times more in the tissues and they're only slowly releasing it. And as long as the body's inflamed, the release rate is really, really slow. And, you know, finally, it'll kind of get accustomed to releasing it and then more will start coming. But you've got to address the fundamental blocks that are happening in the in the detoxification system. And that's happening, you know, at a systemic level in the liver and kidneys and at a microcosm level or cellular level. You know, this is the same transport system. And so you got to bring that up and you got to get them to dump into the blood and then you can drain down. But, you know, the way we do it, we get them to dump in the blood and we get the liver to do its job. Right. Now, if you want to, you, you know, speed that up and put little bits of, of DMPS or DMSA in, that's fine. I mean, I had a guy who came to me and he showed me like 30 challenge tests and he was a yeah. practitioner from Western Slope, Colorado, 30 challenges and his, you know, his lead and mercury just going up, you right. know, it's like, they're like this and he's like, I'm nowhere, man. And I put them on our whole system and, you know, he did like, you know, we had it in this seven month block, like right. boom, seven and a half months and titrating up all the way through. And he did a challenge. And like his last challenge test was here. He did another challenge and he was all the way down there. He's like, yeah. all right, done. I mean, but that was the information we had back then. That was what we were told to do yeah, was do exactly. those things. And, like, like, and then the study came out, what, like eight years ago. And it was like, this is all reabsorbed into the brain. And like, awesome. Awesome. I'm so hey. glad. <laughs> yeah, you want the down it. You don't want to just force stuff around. You want right. the vacuum. You want the liver as like a vacuum cleaner. Totally. Fucking everything down and out. So when you release anything, it's going through the outdoors. I think there has and just been... And the glutathione complexes only go through the outdoors. You got indoors and you got outdoors. And the outdoors recognize those complexes and they only go out. Yeah. Thanks, Doc. I could talk to you for forever. But is there anything that I didn't ask that you think is super relevant? Uh, 
Yeah, just to hit again on this autonomic aspect. Uh, and the autonomic aspect, you know, you've got sympathetic, parasympathetic, this wings of the automatic, the background nervous system. Sympathetic is fight or flight. Parasympathetic, rest, digest, repair, regenerate, detoxify. While you're in the stressed out sympathetic mode, you deprioritize everything on that side and you prioritize running away from an immediate danger. Mm -hmm. So if we don't address our mind stream, our perception of danger, pain, stress in our environment around us, we're never going to be able to let go of these toxins. If you can't let go of something somebody said to you a couple of days ago, how are you ever going to let go of this soup of toxins that you're holding on to? And that's a biochemical mind-body reality. And we can use things like CBD and GABA to restore that balance a little bit, but you definitely need to address your perception of pain and stress and fear and do things like mindfulness meditation even if it's the electronic binaural beats things uh, breathing exercises that might even be on your phone if you don't do them if you don't get control over that perception of stress you're never going to be able to heal yourself 100% most people that are so toxic whatever it may be with have incredible sympathetic tone. Yes, that was a good, that was a good. That was my, <laughs> my sympathetic look. I think that's like a rabbit that's frozen there. <laughs> yes, that's it. And that's, you know, and, and see, the thing is the toxins reinforce that and their perception of their own uh, mortality and their toxicity and their sickness is feeding right into that. So they have to get on top of that. And they have to figure out what the tools that are best suited to them to do that are. Yeah, I agree. Well, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Yeah, quicksilverscientific.com. Uh, there's a new uh, website that is coming out real soon that is a, a consumer one. The one that we have now is more practitioner driven. But you can get on there, sign up for our newsletters. You'll get information. Uh, you're going to see a lot of webinars. And uh, we have a YouTube page, the Quicksilver Scientific YouTube page, where most of my webinars are archived. A lot of the lectures that I do for AKM Autism 1, A4M are on there. So there's a lot of information you can get from these lectures on all of these on all of these topics uh, and just, you know, start your journey. It's, uh, it's easy. Uh, it's easy to get into trying the products with us. And as you start to really make changes in your health, you're just going to want to dive deeper and deeper. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate having you, all your information, all your knowledge. It's been fantastic. Great. Thanks so much, Amory. Yeah. And to all our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us today, hanging with us. And if you want to see this, on video, please head over to our YouTube channel, Fearless Health Podcast, and always let us know what you want to hear more of. We will bring you more of that. Subscribe and say hello. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.